You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through, just go through 1 through 5 here. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is kind of the person, Luke. Luke is writing this book of Acts and he's writing it to Theophilus. His name, Theophilus, I think means lover of God. Of God, um, And so he's writing to this man and he's compiling these things. It says, in the first book, which Luke is saying is the book of the Gospel of Luke, which we've preached through, the second volume of Luke is actually the book of Acts, written by the same guy, Luke. But in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's an important verse. What is this speaking about today? Jesus began to do this. It does not mean that Jesus finished to do, and now I'm gonna tell you a new story. (laughs) No, he says, I am going to tell you season two. I'm gonna continue the story, the message of Jesus. I'm going to continue to teach you these things, all right? So I've dealt with all these things. So then he says, I'm gonna dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse two, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse three says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the message that he's preaching, the gospel he preaches about the kingdom of God. Verse four. Verse four actually says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's Jesus' words, this beginning, this opening to the book of Acts, which is kind of linking Luke and Acts together. Jesus is just saying and reminding them, the Spirit is coming, I am going to leave. But do not worry, for there will be a helper come to you. And here we see that Jesus is continuing his message, continuing the work in the book of Acts. We continue to see the message and the mission of Jesus, which we could summarize in the word, the gospel, a word we use all the time. The word, the gospel, is continuing, both in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then continuing now into Acts. So to better understand this message of the gospel, the proclamation of it, I think in a sense we almost have to go back to Matthew briefly, as it's in the gospels where we find the story of Jesus. We, we call them gospels, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the good news of Matthew, Mark, Luke, but really it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's all about the gospel. What is this gospel? And it's a whole message in and of itself. Gospel, the euangelion, this Greek word that means good news, where we get our word evangelism, of proclaiming the good news of what? Good news of, of who? Well, we just talked about that good news of, that we, last week in particular, the good news of the anointed one, the Messiah, who has come to rescue and redeem the world. The message 
that is so good, though, that when Jesus dies, he, he rises again, he appears to the disciples and hundreds more in his appearing, and then he ascends into heaven, and yet it's such a good message, it's so amazing. It doesn't stop there, it doesn't end there. It, it isn't just like period, Jesus rose from the dead and appeared, period, we're done. No, it continues. And really, in retrospect, as we look back, the message is just getting started. Like, like this series could just keep on going and going. You know? <laughs> but it, it's like this story that's not over with Jesus. It's just beginning in so many ways. It's just getting fired up. Like you fire up an engine on a cold winter morning. Yes, those winter mornings are coming. But on those cold winter mornings, right? You, you fire up that engine. You turn the key. You don't turn it back off. You leave that engine running. And it starts going. And you turn the heat up, Right? And you go back inside to wait or whatever for that engine to keep up warming up. And that's the sense here that Jesus has turned the keys. He has the keys to heaven, uh, to life, over the grave, over, the, over sin. And, and he turns the key and that engine is now beginning to be fired up. It's beginning to be heated up. And Jesus is saying in the book of Acts, let's drive, let's roll, let's go. And there's this action, there's this activity and motivation that continues even here to us today. And so to do that, he, he gives kind of a, a commission. And I just wanna read it briefly with you. You could turn with me to Matthew 28, where we read of this incredible commission that Jesus gives to his apostles that gives us a little bit of a plan, a little bit of a direction that he also gives in Acts 1.8. But he, he gives this plan, direction, this mission that, that we have today as the church. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 say, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's no, that's no pithy statement. That is Jesus saying, look, I am king. I am God. I have the authority over life and death. All authority from God on high has been endowed to me. I am going to a place to sit next to the Father where then I will mediate and I will rule and reign. This is my kingdom. I am king. That's in so many ways is what he's saying. It's a powerful statement of authority. But then verse 19, he says, so all the authority has been given to me. So now you, I'm endowing you to go. I'm commissioning you to go. Get out of here, right? Therefore, make disciples of all nations, that brings us back to all nations will be blessed through Abraham. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity there, teaching them, teaching them to do what? To observe all that I have commanded you, all that Jesus has taught, all that Jesus is passing down. Keep teaching the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the gospel message. Continue teaching that. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. I've got the keys. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have you start driving the car. We're gonna start rolling up, but don't worry, I'm with you. The power for this engine to continue to run is all within the Holy Spirit who is going to come. It's in this watershed moment where we see that this kind of beginning starts to take shape, this kind of falling action of the story where things don't slow down. If anything, they're starting to speed up. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, their mission, this work will continue until he returns. So go, make disciples, and I'm with you. And my spirit, my helper, my comforter will empower you. 
So Jesus is with them. Even though he's going to leave them, he is sending his spirit to be in them. For we are then, this new phrase will come out in the entire New Testament where this phrase that Paul will use over and over and over, the phrase that we are in Christ. It is used over and over and over in Christ, even though he has ascended. How is that possible? And so that's what we reconcile. He will send his spirit to help them to help them proclaim the gospel message. If you go back to Acts, you look at Acts 1. Acts 1 verse 3 talks about how he presented himself and it was mentioned in Matthew 28 as well as he preached the kingdom of God here. Uh, In Acts 1 3 it says that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The most consistent message Jesus preached was the kingdom of God which then is then extrapolated to be described in the New Testament as the gospel. The good news of Jesus' rule and reign over sin, hell, the devil, and death. Jesus has kingdom rule over these things. And in the book of Acts, we see his kingdom spread. We sing his kingdom expand. In the book of Acts, we see the kingdom expand primarily, which is fascinating to think about, primarily through the proclamation of the gospel. And Steve Lawson was talking about this and I, was, I found it fascinating. He said that, that really the book of Acts, if you, if you look at it, is really a book about preaching. And you're like, that's just because you're a preacher. Okay, well, all right. Let me convince you, okay, because I know some of you don't trust me in that. All right, so, um, but it's a book of preaching for it is a very, it's a book of episodes that goes from episode to episode. It's very fast moving. This happened, this happened, this happened. But almost every major episode includes a sermon of some sort. And, and, and what we have really is he said that every one out of every four words in the book of Acts is either a sermon or someone proclaiming an urgent message of the gospel to someone else that could almost be called a sermon. And then he describes that really there are 19 major discourses of sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, the book is described to, to really follow two guys. I, I did two, two guys, and uh, the two guys are, are Peter in the beginning and, and Paul at the end. Peter is the beginning as the church expands in Jerusalem. Then that transition of G- Peter to Paul as Paul is converted, Paul takes the end of the book. But it follows really two major guys. Peter has eight different sermons in the book. Pretty incre- incredible, eight different sermons where he's proclaiming the gospel. And then Paul uh, has nine different sermons where he is proclaiming the gospel. And then there's a few others like Stephen uh, and, and others. Uh, but the primary method of the church expansion is through the proclamation, you could say, preaching of the gospel message and the kingdom of God. This is the primary means in which the church expands. They preached. They preached. Preach it, right? You know? They, 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 they really did. If you, if you read some of these sermons in the book of Acts is they are convincing. They are, um, they have a word. Uh, in fact, every time I get together with Mark Holombo, we always talk about this word. It's, it's something that we've shared. He, he likes this word and I've shared it with him. It's this word unction. I don't know if you've heard it before. It t- talks about this word that describes a conviction from within. Uh, you have an unction to preach the truth. Preaching in the book of Acts, and I hope today, and I hope in some measure in this church as well, is not just a casual suggestion that maybe this is true. You know, maybe this is a good thing to spend your time on. You know, 
I don't want you ever to get the sense that today uh, that I waffle around that maybe I believe this stuff. Now there are times when I grapple with my own doubts. Uh, faith and theology is difficult and I struggle with things internally. I'm not perfect in those ways. And yet the preaching of God's word should carry with it a certain spiritual unction, a certain conviction that the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so valuable, it is so vital, it is a message of life or death. That is how important what we do here today is. It is about the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, primarily in preaching, yes, in a variety of other means and ways, for certain. But, but let us consider that even in our own life. Not every one of you, and some of you are grateful for that, have to get up here and preach the message of the gospel. But every single one of you has areas of influence that I do not have, that the elders do not have. You know people in the world who do not have the hope that is within you. And they might ask, where is that hope coming from from within you? And how is it that you proclaim the gospel? Yes, with your life and with your action, but we also must include with our words. And how is it that you too are a preacher of the gospel? I want you to think about that. You're like, I didn't think I'd come in here being called to be a preacher. Well, maybe some of you are, but I think in some measure, every single person, young to old, is a preacher of the gospel in their life to their areas of influence that you all have. And I think that's important. And I think it's something for us to consider as we examine this entire book. Uh, but then he gives them directions to then go with this message and proclaim it with conviction and with the power that will fall on you here. Look at Acts uh, chapter one. If you look at verses four through eight, he gives this message. I'm, I'm gonna look at uh, verse seven here. Verse seven says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but, verse eight, very important verse, you will receive power, dunamis, this power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right? A witness of Jesus' power, witnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection, you will witness that and proclaim that where? Well, first, you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem. That's where it's gonna all start. Then it's gonna spread and expand to Judea and Samaria, and then it's gonna spread to the ends of the earth so that all nations are blessed. And when he looked at these things, verse nine says, and they were looking at it, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He left. He was ascended. And while they were gazing with their jaws hitting the floor, uh, <laughs> that was my addition. They were gazing into heaven. As he went, behold, two men stood in white robes and said, men of Galilee, what are you looking at? <laughs> Why are you standing here looking into heaven? Do you not know what he just told you to do? Go, right? This Jesus was taken up from you in heaven and he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, right? And that's our end of the sermon here or the end of this series, the coming again. But here he gives them directions. It'll start in Jerusalem. And really, the entire book of Acts, that's an outline for Acts. Chapters one through seven is Jerusalem. Chapters eight through nine is Samaria. Chapters uh, 10 through the end is the Gentiles, the and you have that, Samaria, the end, um, uh, this uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, ends of the earth, okay? And this spread that even here today. I, don't, I didn't see Jaffrey or Nipswich in there, but I think it's included in the ends of the earth, okay? Um, we're we're kind of wondering, like, yeah, where's, where, why are we not mentioned, you yeah? um, So it, one day, it gets here, right? And that's what's so cool about it, that we're even participating in this very thing. This is our mission, too. This is your mission if you choose to accept it, right? This is what we accept as, as a Christian, this is our mission. 
Then Jesus ascends in Acts 1, 9 through 11, right, we just read, yet he promises the spirit will come, the helper will come, and then the big, big moment in Acts chapter two, what I'm calling the combustion. And I've heard engines are called combustion engines. I know nothing about engines, so you're probably picking up on that. But uh, the combustion that happens within them, right? This explosion in a sense, a controlled explosion of fire. Where the, in Pentecost, it's a, Pentecost was a word that existed before Acts 2. We're familiar with that, right? The feast uh, in the Old Testament that the Jews were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. The 50 weeks had come and so they were there to celebrate that. And it's on that moment that God chose to send the Holy Spirit. And almost every year in this church, we, we, I preach a message about this. So this isn't the first time I've talked about this. Every Pentecost Sunday, we do a message where we talk and we discuss the implications of Pentecost. So I can't get into all of it uh, today, but this message is so important. It's igniting a tinderbox. It's a fuel for the fire. It's, they were ripe and ready for explosion. If you're a student of history or if you just had to take a history class in high school, you probably learned about World War I and kind of the start of these amazing wars. And I had thought about a, a, a phrase that always stuck with me where it was quoted that the Balkan region and the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that, that um, Francis Ferdinand, this assassination that really started World War I, that that was like a powder kick. It was ready to be lit on fire and the assassination of Francis Ferdinand was the spark that lit the powder keg of Europe that then lit on fire all the alliances to then have to war against one another and then that eventually passed into the causing of World War II which eventually carries over into the wars that we experience today and there was a fascinating guy who was just speaking about that this really could have been a, a regional war within the Balkan region but, but there it spread and without that event there would have been no World War II. Without it there would have been no communism. Without it no Middle East. No of what we're experiencing today but isn't that how history works? It all builds upon one another and it's all connected. And so what we have is this incredible event that happens in Pentecost that, that is connected from the old to the new, the ushering in of the new covenant, the prophecies that we see in Joel 2 that is also in Acts 2 that in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit. This is the hope that Moses had in the book of Numbers. I think it's chapter 11 where he hoped that one day it wouldn't be him that would proph prophesy but that all people would have the spirit of God with them. This is the beauty of what happens here in, in, in really Acts 2, which is a unifying message. It is a unifying experience. It is a unifying outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh equally here in this place. And 3,000 souls after Peter gets up and preaches, quite an extraordinary message, uh, repent and are baptized. They're filled with the Spirit. It's an incredible, powerful moment. And so this gospel message that he preaches is, is really f centering around what this gospel, this proclamation of truth that, that Peter goes out and says that he, he says in verse 31 that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And, and this Jesus in verse 32, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, he says. Like we saw that with our own eyes just a few weeks prior to this. We saw all of that. 
And now, uh, having received from him the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this on you yourselves that you're seeing and hearing now. It's an incredible moment, an incredible message. The engine's on, it's running, it's fired up. Now nitro is injected into that thing and it's ready to roll, right? The gas that's keeping it going is here. The fuel of the fire, the Holy Spirit is being poured on this fire and it will not stop burning and it is continually burning even today. The Spirit comes, it unifies people around a central element. The Holy Spirit does not unify people around the Holy Spirit, you know that? The Holy Spirit's job is to make much of Christ. Every time you see the Holy Spirit mentions, it is mentioning Christ. The Holy Spirit unifies us around the message of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. That is what the Spirit does, and that's what the Spirit does today. It points us to Jesus. It, it, it regenerates us from within and, and, and builds inside of us the living message of the gospel message inside of us. And then it unifies and brings people into fellowship. If you look at Acts 2, verse 42, very well-known, famous verse that describes some of the actions of this fledgling church. Okay, 3,000 people are saved. There's all these new converts. The Spirit is here. What do we do now? Uh, well, we have in Acts 2.42 some of the first actions taken by the early church. Acts 2.42, they devoted. There's this devotion of uniting themselves around what? The apostles' teaching, you could say the scripture, as they were preaching and teaching, it was being written down, it's what we have today. Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, Sundays, okay, well, or just fellowship, but to the breaking of bread, there it is, the prayers, right? And they had all things in common, they were selling their possessions, they were distributing, this goes on in this passage. They were attending the temple together, receiving food and giving to one another, praising God, and many were being added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It's just this kind of summary couple of verses of all this amazing things that's happening and how Jesus is working. Jesus is unifying through his spirit. The spirit brings devotion to the things of Christ. The spirit is this almost silent partner rather than the main event. He's the silent partner that exists to make much of Christ. I wanna read something that helps me kind of summarize this. I know we're, we're coming short on time here. But it says in, um, that the Holy Spirit unifies. In, in Wayne Grudem writes this, he says, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost, Peter proclaimed that the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled. There is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit coming on a community of believers, not just one leader like Moses or Joshua, but on sons and daughters, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants, all received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this time. In this event of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit created a new community that was the church. The community was marked by an unprecedented unity never seen before. Unity around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ through his spirit is where we find our identity as a church and where it is we find our common point as a church and what keeps us together rather than what drives us apart. That truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ and who he truly is and how he is expressed in the world. So they devoted themselves to this. They got together. They were, they, they, there was incredible miracles and affirmations and verifications of this message and it's true, uh, uh, miraculous, true um, God-like existence here in this place that God was here in their midst, that he isn't dead. Jesus is alive and, and, and in that Jesus is alive message, we go right into Acts 3. 
Or in Acts 3 where there's an incredible healing of a man who was born lame from birth. In fact, at the end, it says he was 40 years old. He had been lame. Everybody in the area knew who he was because he sat at the beautiful gate. And in that time period, there wasn't all these programs to supply their needs for people who were dis- had disabilities. And yet here, he asked for alms. The people were expected to give and support this man. He asked for alms, for help. And, and Peter and John in Acts 3, they come to this man and they, they basically say, as the man looks up at them, And he asks for alms in Acts 3, verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him and as he did to John and said, look at us. And he fixed his, this is is a very emotional passage, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, like a gold or silver, something to help your immediate need. But no, they have something even greater to give him. Verse 6 says, and Peter said, I have no silver and gold for you, but what I do have I give to you. And notice the phrase that he says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And then what did he do? Leaping up and down, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with God, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him and walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And actually, I don't have time to get into it, but the next verse is he's clinging to Peter and John while he's preaching. Peter goes and preaches this incredible message and and the guy is like clinging to him, doesn't want to let go. Like he's standing there like, this is my bud, Peter, right? And he's just holding on to him. He won't let him go. It's an incredible time and yet what we see is an extraordinary event that is foretold to happen in Isaiah 35. It's not like they just walked in there and just randomly did this and it's just the nearest person. There's an incredible, powerful fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in this passage that is authenticating the nature of the movement of Jesus Christ, that Jesus both uh, called lame men to get up and rise and walk as the one who was let down through the, uh, through the, the roof, he was let down, get up and walk, let your sins be forgiven. Here also in Isaiah 35, and we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but in Isaiah 35, this is talking about how the ransom shall return and behold your God will come, he will come and save you. This is verse five of Isaiah 35. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, The lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And eventually a highway will be there, a way of holiness. They will come into Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. This is a message that we foretells a time and a period when there will be a kingdom in which lame men will walk and jump for joy. This is the picture that we receive here in Acts 3 that is fulfilled from Isaiah 35 that Jesus walked in now is authenticated here in the message of Peter and John. 
And yet this message and proclamation will, will receive opposition where you can flip through on your own or your own study or in your small groups later in Acts three through eight, the Sadducees will arrest them and try to stop this message of Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira are gonna try to receive their own attention for what the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is doing and they will be struck down for in a sense almost blaspheming the Spirit of God and trying to withdraw glory from God for themselves. Uh, the apostles are gonna be arrested. Widows are neglected. There is issues among the young, early, fledgling church. Not everything's all hunky-dory. Deacons are established. Hellenists and Hebrews are arguing there. Stephen then is martyred, and we get the first bloodshed here where the church persecution happens. Saul starts persecuting the church, and yet all that we have at this time is primarily happening in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, we see in Acts 8, Philip travels to Samaria, a place that, remember, when Jesus' days, the apostles, the disciples were like, we don't walk through there, we go around, right? We don't go through Samaria. Like, do you know what you're doing? And yet he went to Jacob's well and spoke to the Samaritan woman, and there's this extraordinary reception of the kingdom of God there. Now the gospel goes to Samaria through Philip in Acts 8. And in Acts 8, we see that um, there's an incredible outpouring of the Spirit. Many receive and believe. Samaritans almost see a, a sort of Pentecost event, not maybe just a repeat of it, but an extraordinary transitional filling of the Spirit upon an ostracized ethnic group of people who were, as it says, is largely marginalized up until this point, but now are receiving the same message and through the Spirit of God, they are being brought together into one body to the point where eventually Peter and John have to come up from Jerusalem and are like, whoa, 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 we gotta check this out. Is this really happening? Like you're saying God even wants Samaritans to come into the kingdom? I know Jesus did that, but are you sure? They go up, they check it out, and, and they verify that yes, this is an authentic message, this is an authentic salvation, this is good. Philip receives these Samaritans. Saul is converted in Acts 9, and then Acts uh, 10, we get another inclusion of the Gentiles. And, and this incredible outpouring of the Spirit through a man that is kind of an unlikely character, a man, a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, a man named Cornelius who receives a vision that he is to go to Simon the Tanner's house and call this man named Peter to come to him, preach the gospel to him and his fellow Gentiles. And, and, G, and Peter is at the same time receiving this message of a, of a white sheet that comes descending down upon him with all of the unclean foods and types that he was never to eat and never to touch. But now that those common things were no longer common, that they were unsacred, that they were no longer that kind of, they were no longer to be pushed aside but were to be invited in, that, that he too was not to call any person common or unclean but rather the door has been busted open. Receive and fellowship with Gentiles. For a Jew, a devout Jew, that would have been a foreign concept, but now Jesus is opening the door here in Joppa for that very thing to happen. The four corners of the earth, this sheet descends from the north to the south, to the east, to the west, that includes and envelops the entire earth, that now the earth will receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that now all can receive the message of Jesus in a way never thought possible before, but now the spirit will spread north, south, east, and west to the ends of the earth, Acts 10. 
And then in Acts 11, after this extraordinary experience of Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, now in Gentiles, the Greeks, now we, they, they are starting to gather in a very Gentile location, the city of Antioch. A thriving city, but becomes the missionary center for the early church. Now, all of a sudden, Jerusalem is in the ministry center. Now, Antioch is. Antioch is a place that sends out Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others. And it's in that place where we see this extraordinary expansion take place, where it says in Acts 11, verse 26, it says, so Barnabas went, took Tarsus and looked for Saul, and then Acts 11, verse 26, and when he had found him, He brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with a church there in Antioch and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples or the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Christians. And like we already told you about before, from that moment on, we are called Christians, little Christs, as we really bring the message of Jesus Christ through our bodies and through our local representations of Christ's body, the local church, to the world. For it is even to the Gentiles that have been granted a repentance that leads to life. A repentance that leads to life for the Jews, for the Samaritans, for the Gentiles, for the entire world. And the last two words of the book of Acts, the very last two words of the book of Acts are about Paul who is teaching and preaching the kingdom of God without hindrance. I like that ending, without hindrance. There's been a lot of people who've tried to stop the church. (laughs) Been a lot of movements in history that have tried to stamp out the church, persecute it to death, and quit that, pour that fire out. It still hasn't happened today. In fact, we're seeing global movements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we work with a company called the Seed Company that actually translates the Bible into all nations, tribes, and tongues, all languages, and they have a target date where they actually feel that the Bible, portions of the Bible, will actually be translated into every single language and sub-language on the entire planet. That every single known language and sub-language will have a copy or a portion of the scripture by a target date. I think it was 2050 or 2060 or a certain point. And it's an incredible feat that allows that today that we now have this gospel expanding to the ends of the earth. The Christian movement will never be stopped. The Holy Spirit can never be put out. Jesus Christ is alive and he's continually working even here today in this extraordinary thing that we call Hope Fellowship Church. (laughs) It's an incredible movement, and I'm thrilled to be a small part of it, and I hope you are too. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful for all that you're doing and all that you have done. We say that often in our prayers, at least I do. I look back and I see all that you've done, and I look forward to how you'll continue to work. But God, we long for you to return as well. We think about the storyline that we've been in, God, and I ask God that you would come soon. Your word says in Revelation, you are coming soon. God, help us to keep the faith, to keep pressing on, to continue the message of the gospel that we ought to be proclaiming with our lives, with our marriages, to our children, to our friends and family, to our places of work. God, help us to have a passion and unction for this gospel. God, if there's people here today who don't know this, they don't know this message, they don't know this gospel, they don't know you, Jesus, I pray that you would today would be the day of salvation, that today they would come and meet and and learn about who you are and what you have done for them and how you have saved them from their sin and offered them a great inheritance that will be enjoyed for eternity. God, we thank you for this truth. 
We praise you, Lord, for who you are, how you are the Almighty. You have all authority and power given to you on heaven and on earth. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.